This is the Education Gadfly Show. That's the big house. Amber, you don't know about the big house? 115,000 people. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And please welcome my special guest for this week, Fordham's own Adam Tyner. How's it going, Mike? Welcome back to the show, Adam. Joining us as well, our colleague, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hello, hello. Hey, you guys know what that means when it's an all Fordham podcast. It is time for shameless self-promotion. <laughs> Woohoo! We're going to get to that in this week's Ed Reform Update. All right. And the shameless self-promotion we're doing is for Fordham's latest study, one that was written by Adam Tyner and uh, Matthew Larson, and it's called End of Course Exams and Student Outcomes, and that is exactly what it looks at. Uh, Adam, first of all, remind us, Matthew Larson, which, uh, which university is he at? We should give them a shout out. Yeah, Matt is an economist at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. All right. Very cool. So, uh, Adam, yeah, this is a great study. There has been surprisingly little work done on end-of-course exams, which is crazy uh, because they play a critical role in many states at the high school level. Uh, and you looked both at uh, some descriptive data, looking at the trajectory of the use of these exams, how states are using them, and then you dug in to try to look at the relationship with some key student outcomes. So right. let's start uh, first with the descriptive stuff. Uh, it, how common are these end-of-course exams and how are they being used? Well, they've become increasingly common. Back when I was originally looking at some of this literature a few years ago, trying to learn more about student accountability and student incentives, and I kept seeing all this stuff about external assessment and about exit exams and end-of-course exams, and the end-of-course exam stuff was really just talking about New York and North Carolina. Those were the only two states that had these things back in the 90s when that earlier research was done. And the popularity of end of course exams, or we call them EOCs sometimes, um, is uh, it's just exploded over the last 25 years. Um, there are 36 states that have used them for something over the last uh, over that period that we could identify. 33 of those states use them for some kind of accountability. So somebody, either students or uh, administrators or districts, were held uh, accountable for the results of those scores. Um, and although there's been a little bit of a decline, um, in the last few years, there's still 26 states for the class of 2020, uh, students in 26 states will have taken an end of course exam. That's right. And for this study, we're talking about exams that are developed by states, right? Man mandated by states. That's right. There's of course That's other right. kinds of exams. The most famous ones are advanced placement and international baccalaureate exams that could also be right. considered I mean, end of course exams. AP exams are end of course exams. They're they're also curriculum based exams that are standardized and you know cover the students who take that course. Although of course they're opt in. I don't think you have to take. Uh, I took a couple AP classes in high school, but didn't ever take any AP exams. So wise moves, uh, sir. Unless yeah. they <laughs> and don't judge and uh, and and so they're a kind of of end of course exam as well. But what we're talking about is state-mandated centralized end-of-course exams for generally typical courses like yeah. Algebra 1 and Biology are the two most common. Um, and, uh, and, and that said, there are states where they have an end-of-course exam. Alabama just moved to this model recently where they've just devolved all of the 
responsibility for it down to the districts. So districts can decide whether or not to take that centralized end of course exam, whether their students will take that mm-hmm. end of course exam. But, um, but it's, it, yeah, it's up to the district, but it's still centralized. And in some cases, uh, the states require students to pass these exams in order to graduate or maybe pass a certain number of them. So right. they serve in that respect as exit exams. But, you know, many of the That's exit right. exams that we think about are graduation exams in the past were more generic, right? We think about MCAS in Massachusetts. That was more of a classic uh, generic math test and, and reading test. Uh, these are more tied to specific courses. Uh, and That's they right. go beyond just just English language arts and math, science and social studies and other areas. And, and I mean, what's the basic? And, and and oh, and also that that in some cases, uh, states say that it's it's a link to graduation. In other cases, it might be that uh, the results of your test go on your report card or your transcript or are right. part of your grade. I mean, what's the idea here? Why why go through the the whole bother of making kids take these tests? Well, the, I, there's not a lot of testing in high school traditionally. The, the high school testing and accountability thing has been pretty minimal compared to um, in, in lower grades as far as federal law has been concerned. And um, basically, there used to be states that had these, um, had these high school graduation exams. They called them minimum competency exams, or at least that's mm-hmm. what wonks called them. Maybe the states didn't call them that because it doesn't sound great. But um, basically, they were low-level tests, oftentimes based on eighth-grade skills, and students would have to pass that in order to graduate high school. And there was a push um, in the 1980s and 1990s to make those tests more rigorous, to hold students accountable for higher, or to hold students or schools high, uh, accountable for higher-level skills. And so some of those uh, places moved the bar up, so they continued to have a kind of general test. But they made it based on ninth or tenth grade skills instead of being based on eighth grade skills. And in other places, they started making the test subject specific. So rather than just being a general uh, test, it was actually tied to a course. And so you take biology and then you take a centralized biology yeah. end of course exam that gives the state and gives the district and gives mm-hmm. everybody an opportunity to see what learning has occurred. Um, for the student in yeah. in that class, and, and this of course intersects so, with with the topic of grade inflation that we've covered before. Uh, you know, with the concern that look, if you know, we do also have grades, and if you could trust those grades uh, in terms of teachers setting a high bar and a consistent bar across classrooms, across schools, maybe you wouldn't need these tests. Uh, but we know from our own studies and others that that you can't count on that. And furthermore, you know, back even starting back in the eighties when Many states after Nation at Risk said, you know, we need to raise the bar for what it takes to graduate from high school. So we're going to take, make kids take more math, more science, more English. You know, in return, some districts and schools started playing games where they just relabeled courses and said, okay, well, now we're going to right. used to be Algebra 1, we'll call Algebra 2. So you needed an external check on all of that in order to make it work. Yeah. I mean, Mike, it seems to me, I, I like this for a lot of reasons, honestly, and um, I wish we could do... I, I, I feel like we need to do more to communicate why this is such a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one reason is that it seems like um, it, we're, we're sort of overshooting or maybe being politically unrealistic when we try to hold the line on high school graduation. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I think we should, but like realistically the political pressures to raise graduation rates are extraordinary. If you're a governor right. or right, this to me seems like a pretty re- reasonable middle ground, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you, don't 
you know, tell the kid, hey, look, you, you're not going to graduate from high school. If you can just put some skin in the game, right? Yeah. And, and just say, look, all right, um, <laughs> we're, we're probably not going to flunk you, but guess what? You are actually going to be evaluated based on this test at the end of, of, of the of the semester. And, um, you know, if you don't do well on it, you could get a D or a C. Mm-hmm. That, that will get the attention of many, not all, but many high school students. Um, and, and then I think, you know, it also has these sort of, I'm sure Adam can speak more eloquently uh, about this than I can, but, you know, it has these potentially salutary effects about the sort of teacher student relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, there's something incredibly messed up. I think many of us feel about just holding t- teachers res- directly responsible yeah. um, instead without holding kids responsible, right? Well, and to make teachers be <laughs> both the yeah. teacher <laughs> and the judge and jury to say, you know, have you met the standard? Right. Put them uh, on the same team. Put them on the same team. And that's right. what you hear in, in AP and IB is that it feels like the teacher's then a coach. We're all going up against the big test uh, rather than forcing the teacher to be the one to decide whether kids met the standard or at what level. Um, now, all that said... You know, I will point out that when some states have tried to include it in grades, like in right. Texas, where that was famously going to be the policy was something like 20% of a kid's grade would be tied to how they did on these tests. There was a huge backlash, especially from those famous white suburban moms, uh, you know, who uh, were very worried about their kids getting into good colleges, especially in Texas, where they have the top 10% policy. And, and you know, they all freaked out about the idea of, you know, what if my precious uh, child uh, who, you know, does well on uh, essays and things, but isn't good at taking tests, does poorly. Uh, you know, it's not like it makes this easy politically. Well, when we're talking about high school students, it's really strange. I mean, it's one thing if you're talking about little kids and you don't want to, you know, do too yeah. much to hold them too accountable for their own, uh, you know, for their own behavior because they're just little kids. But when we're talking about high schoolers, they're the ones who have so much control over how they behave over whether yeah. they pay attention in class or whether they decide to you know spend that extra hour at home doing homework or playing video games or going right. with their friends or whatever they have so much control and autonomy over their lives it's kind of crazy to not hold them responsible for the outcome yeah. the, you know those shorter and medium term outcomes of their education and i feel like i mean it in some ways, Texas, I mean, it's, it's an, it's a, a rare case, right? Most, most states don't have that policy, right? I mean, I'm sure that's right. Some no, it's a very rare thing to ban yeah. Texas and one other state have a policy where they actually don't allow the results of the EOCs to be included in students' course grades. It's actually becoming more common. Mm-hmm. States are concerned about graduation rates and they're, it's actually become kind of a, a trend where states like North Carolina are not making end of course exams a graduation requirement, but are instead incorporating the results into course grades. That's actually becoming more common, not and, less. And it also seems like something we could phase in, Adam, very quickly. But like, right? I mean, you could start sure. with ten percent. Yeah. Um, and if we're concerned about that's the what most states have done. They yeah. they yeah. still they they start at a, a lower level. And then they kind of roll it, roll it, um, roll it out over time. I mean, look, I, I think I've probably said this on the show before. Uh, I like what the Kerwin Commission in Maryland has called for, which is basically that you have kids uh, pass a battery of end of course exams in maybe the ninth and tenth grade, or maybe tenth and eleventh grade, and if they pass them uh, at a high enough level, they get to move on, uh, and, it, the, and then get they get to do some really cool stuff like take AP courses earn college credit through dual enrollment or do serious career technical stuff uh, 
including a paid apprenticeship. Uh, but you move the line earlier in the high school career, not at the very end. And then the kids who don't pass it have more time to keep working on it and get that job done. All right, let's quickly, Adam, boy, so many things to discuss, but we do need to cover, of course, the empirical findings here. Uh, <laughs> You know, oh, yeah, there was a study. Previous uh, studies looking at exit exams, at least in some cases, have found that those exams can depress uh, graduation rates, high school graduation. So they basically kids fail the test and they get discouraged and they drop out. Uh, you did not find that to be the case with end of course exams. Now, the literature on exit exams is kind of all over the place. When you look internationally, there's a lot of evidence that exit exams are having this positive function of holding students accountable and it's in countries that have exit exams tend to outperform other yep. countries on international tests and stuff. In the United States, there's been less less evidence that exit exams have had a, that kind of positive effect on student learning. And there's also been some concerning evidence that they might depress high school graduation rates and even lead to other bad social outcomes as students are dropping out of high school. Um, in you know, that isn't, I don't think conclusive, but I think it's, there's enough evidence out there that we should be concerned about that. Uh, when we ran our, our analysis of the effects of end of course exams, we didn't find anything like that. End of course exams, no matter whether we looked at all students or when we looked at black and Hispanic students specifically, we never saw a negative effect on graduation rates. We even saw a small positive effect on graduation rates uh, for the overall student population. So that really, um, I think, alleviates one of the key concerns about exit exams, that they're this kind of, by being this, this gateway to get, to get through high school, they're just holding a lot of people back. And um, that, that just isn't what we found when we looked at EOCs. And then, of course, people want to know, well, all right, does, does it lead kids to actually learn more? This is a tricky one to answer because famously, we do not have much information about student achievement at the high school level. We don't have state Studying by state. Studying high school is hard. Yeah. I mean, we don't have state by state results in NAEP. Um, we've only got the national results. So you were able to use ACT and SAT results, which again, aren't perfect because not everybody takes those tests, but uh, That's right. there's some ways that you can adjust for that. And, and what did you find in terms of that impact? Well, we did our best to try to make that comparison as valid as possible by using either the ACT or SAT depending on which was more common in a given state, and then also controlling for the proportion of the students who take the exam and then controlling for all kinds of other student demographics and everything, as well as having state and cohort fixed effects, which help to get rid of a lot of the biases that you have from, from, from using something that not everyone takes. But um, it's not perfect. But when we looked at that, um, we, we didn't find, I don't think, conclusive evidence that, that students are learning a lot more uh, in states that have end of course exams versus in states, uh, students in states that don't. But uh, we did find some suggestive evidence that, especially in those states where they are using uh, end of course exams as kind of the center of the high school accountability system, students in those states did seem to be outperforming uh, other students on the ACT or, or SAT. And when you look at the top end of that range, the, the, the places where students were taking the most end of course exams, those, those uh, differences are sometimes statistically significant. They're bordering on statistical significance at the very least. And uh, it's definitely suggestive evidence that places that are doing the most with regard to end of course exams are seeing the, the greatest benefit. All right. Very well. We're going to have to leave it there. But Adam, thanks for the great overview. Congrats on the study. Again, uh, the study done with Matthew Larson. It is end of course exams and student outcomes. Check it out at FordhamInstitute.org. Thanks, Adam. 
My pleasure. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thank you, Mike. So, you know, we haven't talked sports in a while. College football starting Ooh, up again. I'm you excited? More, I'm more of an NFL gal. Oh, right. No, can't you, help it. Like, but no, like everybody seems more into college than NFL, but yes. I'm actually. And you root for that terrible team. team. That's terrible, terrible with the terrible, terrible name. Terrible, terrible team. The Redskins, really? I mean, I'm kind of off of them just because I'm so mad they let Kurt Cousins go. Still, still harboring that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, like a kid, my mm-hmm. grandparents, my grandparents, grandparents, like you have a whole line right. of Redskins fans. That's, it's just so hard. That's fine. Look, my, my Michigan Wolverines are ranked seven in the preseason Oof. polls. We'll see if we can keep that up. I've got plans to bring the, the family to the big house for the first time this year. So I'm excited <laughs> for that. House. The right. big house. Amber, you don't know about the big house? 115,000 people in the Michigan stadium. Ah, all right. I've heard of it. Oh, heard of it. not your house. Not <laughs> My See, house. Dave and I both are like, hey. uh, yeah, my family's at my house all the time. <laughs> That's why I don't work from home. But I, I digress. digress. All right. What you got? Amber? Uh, we have a new study um, out by, um, boy, what is this guy's name? Brian Knight. Okay. He's an economist at Brown University. And so he starts looking at the common application, uh, mm-hmm. but used in the, at the university level. Okay. So we hear a lot about the common application and how it could be beneficial for high school kids as they're selecting schools between especially between traditional and and, uh, Mm -hmm. charter schools. But I haven't seen too much on the higher education level. Anyway, this Mm -hmm. was new to me, but there's been a handful of studies, but whatever. This guy looked at the effects of both uh, behaviors on student and universities as a result of enacting this common application. So in a nutshell, the common application, that's literally the name of the centralized portal that you go to, um, allows would-be college kids to submit one application to all colleges or universities that he or she is interested in among their member institutions, which total, I think, almost 900 now. Mm-hmm. The paper said 700. I went on the uh, website. It's up to 900 now. Anyway, uh, they together, these colleges and universities receive roughly 4 million applications from 1 million students annually, just mm-hmm. to give you a, the scope of this. The idea is to reduce the cost of applying and the time associated with both applying and researching universities because mm-hmm. the site has all this information about all these universities. So it's kind of centralized information. Yep. Uh, the Common App or CA began in 1975 with just 15 colleges, mm-hmm. but it has grown rapidly since and it now includes most of the nation's top public institutions and also less selective universities as well. It started mostly in the Northeast, but quickly expanded across the country, including California, Oregon, Colorado, Indiana, Florida. You guys heard of this? Yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll I've stop. I've never met I'll kids of who have been applying the to college. Mike, Mike wants then. to hear the rest of the yes, states. Yes, come on. Yeah. Get on with you it. Mean, it's a research sh- minute. Should Amber. I skip my methodology <sighs> graph? All right. I'm going to skip David. If you got any questions about methodology, okay. we can talk about it later. All right. They use, co- I will at least tell you they use college board data. Okay. There's mm-hmm. a university. There's a survey that comes out every year. Yep. Key finding number one, the introduction of CA increased applications and reduced admission rates. Mm-hmm. Specifically, applications were 12% higher after the college joined CA relative to the period before they joined. Mm-hmm. That figure grew over time, rising to roughly 25% increase one decade after CA which is attributed in part to the improved online platform because initially you submitted these things on paper. Yep. Uh, number two, they find a 9% reduction on the yield of acceptances post-CA entry, mm-hmm. which is consistent with increasing students' choice. Meaning that fewer kids are actually saying, yes, I'll come to this That's right. institution. Mm-hmm. That's right. Third, given this reduction in acceptances... 
colleges responded by increasing the number of admitted students Mm -hmm. in order to satisfy their capacity. Specifically, they'd find a 12 percentage uh, increase in the number of admitted students after joining the CA. And subsequently, they find small increases in enrollment. Mm -hmm. Fourth, they look at geographic, what they call geographic integration, and find that the fraction of -of out-of-state students rose by 1.4 percentage points in the years after joining Mm -hmm. CA, and also that the fraction of foreign students enrolled by 0.3 percentage points in the Mm -hmm. years after joining. In addition, after joining, universities see a significant increase in the average distance that students travel Mm -hmm. to attend, around a 10% increase there. Finally, since CA is disproportionately comprised of more selective institutions, they examine whether it's contributed to a widening of the gap between more and less selective institutions, and they find some evidence that it is indeed associated with an increase in freshman SAT scores. Mm-hmm. Not an increase in the SAT scores of like individual students, right? Just an increase in the quality. Quality. Of, like, yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Sorry. Not that all children are wonderful. But, yeah. <laughs> In other words, uh, the introduction of it increased the likelihood that high ability students are disproportionately sorting into these schools. Yep. 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 All right. I'm going to leave it there because clearly I've already done my minute. What do you make of all this? Yeah, no, I I think that's interesting. And it syncs up with a great uh, Carolyn Hoxby paper from about Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, which I happen to be reading recently because I was trying to understand you know, more about why is it that there's this perception and I think reality that that many of these selective colleges have gotten so much harder to get into mm-hmm. over time, not just because they're playing these numbers games because mm-hmm. of all that, but literally you have to have these ridiculously high SAT scores and GPAs to get into them. And what Carolyn Hoxby found when she looked at this over a decade, decades and decades, was that there is more sorting going on. And that, that in the old days, like if you'll go way back to 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. you know, that, that most top students, uh, they weren't traveling all the way to Harvard. They were going to the, you know, good colleges near home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over time, students have traveled more and the common application makes this easier to find out these schools. And so there is more of this sorting happening. Right. Uh, and that has meant that there's this very, very thin slice of institutions that have gotten much more selective, uh, but mm-hmm. that basically everybody else, every other institution has gotten less selective. So, so the stress that, you know, a lot of upper middle class parents, uh, well-educated parents who are into the college frenzy uh, worry about is, is really something that it's just we're inside a bubble that that doesn't represent the higher ed system writ large. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, I, I don't know, I, I wandered through Harvard a couple of years back and it, it is striking the number of uh, presumably brilliant foreign students yeah. uh, that mm-hmm. attend Harvard these days. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> probably bad news for the David Griffiths of the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's any single thing, right? I, I, or really if there's any way to reverse it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about something as simple as, uh, you know, there's now a nonstop flight from Portland, my, my hometown, yeah. mm-hmm. to 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 the East Coast, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And I actually didn't attend college on the East Coast, but if I'd wanted to, um, that would have been a pretty relevant factor. Yes. It mm. just doesn't feel as far as it used right. to. That's right. um, and the internet makes everything about, you know, three yeah. inches away. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess I, I don't see a problem here. I, I'd be interested. You guys probably know more about this than I do. It, it sounds like the incentives for colleges to actually participate in this are complex, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because it kind of pushes in one direction and pulls in another. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, why, why isn't everyone doing this? If it raises the average SAT mm-hmm. scores of your freshman. Yeah. Why isn't this the simplest way to have a really, you know, turn your middling university into a really stellar university? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, my sense was that maybe it was 
the most elite colleges that were not participating, right. some of the private ones, yeah, you know, in part, be, in part because they want to ask their own questions or they want to, you know, mm-hmm. have their own application. Uh, but no, it's a good point. You would think that anyone in that sort of middle tier would would definitely want to participate. Right. This reminds me of what Charles Murray argued back in Coming Apart, which was that if you if you perfect the meritocracy, if you sort of make the meritocracy even more efficient, uh-huh. it will lead to greater inequality. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and and so right. um, now there's some states that have tried to push back by saying, for example, we're going to create incentives for top students to stay in state and go to our flagship university, even though nationally it might be somewhat in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through merit aid and things like that. And that, that, you know, again, for an individual that, that sort of in, in the perfect meritocracy, maybe kids mm-hmm. would go to Harvard instead of to state you, but you know, the state has a reason to want that kid to stay right. home and yeah. maybe stay there long-term. So anyway, I mean, because they didn't get into obviously, you know, what, what this has to do with like fees that you're charging for application. Yeah. I don't know if that was impacted at all. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, obviously does this yeah. mean that they're, are they competitive in the sense that they now have to be competitive on the tuition side of mm. uh, on things? You know, you, I'm with you, like what other sort of implications does it raise in terms of being competitive uh, it, in it, this? It's not one of those things where I, the, the word inequality strikes me as incredibly complicated here, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you're, uh, a poor student in rural China who happens to be brilliant at math, yeah, and yeah. you use the the, yeah. the common app to get right, into right. Stanford or wherever. I, I don't know. That strikes me as increasing equality or a certain yeah. kind of equality. A certain kind. That's right. Um, it, That's right. Yeah, but it's also true that any sort of sorting is yeah. is liable to wind up with with it, you know those who are most able yes. are probably going yeah. to yeah, find their the way system. to the top. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and look, it's gotten easier to apply to these schools, easier to maybe go to them in terms of travel. What's not even easier is to figure out how much you're expected to pay, you know, which mm-hmm. continues to be the opaqueness of the system mm-hmm. that, you know, this assumption that few people pay the sticker price, but the sticker price is shocking. Right. And you don't really find out what you're going to pay until you've gone through the whole process and sort of get to the end of your senior year. Uh, you don't know that going in, which is not so great. Would, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be a good thing, though? I, I mean, I know we're making this inequality argument, but it, it, it seems like a simpler process has to benefit sort of historically disadvantaged kids, right? Yeah. Doesn't it? Yes. I, like, well, that's what it, I was talking about. Like, what's the implications for tuition and that mm-hmm. fee to fill out the application? That's yeah. sort of the unanswered questions with the study. It, it just but, seems yeah. like our plan for equality can't be to have low-income kids fill out 40 different sure. right. college applications. That just doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. So, right, right. I don't know. That's all I got. That's all David's yeah. got. And that's all the time we've got. Perfect segue. Thanks, Amber. Yes, indeed. That's all the time we've got. Until next week. I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.